If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Today is Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of this crucial week in human history. It is the axis on which all of human history turns. This week will remind us of the death of Jesus, his crucifixion. And it is during that execution, during his crucifixion, that we hear what the church has called the seven words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. During our time today, as we look ahead to the coming week, the events of this week, I want us to consider three of these words. They're all found here in Luke chapter 23. So if you would follow along as I begin reading in verse number 32. Luke 23, 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The first word of these seven words is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This sets forgiveness at the center. It is, in fact, the heart of the Christian faith. By the way, you will remember from the Sermon on the Mount that this is something that Jesus had taught. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. But Jesus was without sin. He was without sin. Several things, several questions come up that I want you to consider. I suggest them for your consideration. First of all, who does the them refer to? Father, forgive them. Is it the Roman soldiers who have nailed him to the cross? Is it, is it Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin who have unjustly condemned him to death? Is it Pontius Pilate who, as Zib read to us today, washed his hands of the whole matter? Is it Peter who denied him three times? The soldiers who mocked him, the rulers who sneered at him, his disciples who abandoned him. Who exactly is it that Jesus wants to be forgiven? The second question that comes up is, what if in fact they did know what they were doing? 
Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. But what if they knew exactly what they were doing? Does this mean that Jesus would not have asked for them to be forgiven if, in fact, they knew what they were doing? We've looked at this in the past, but the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is based on the principle of unknowing or unintentional sin. Listen from Leviticus 4. Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the law's commands, and then we have a list of sacrifices that are to be involved. Later on, if a, ma- a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. And he must may- he- when he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without de- defect. And then later, the next chapter in Leviticus 5, when a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, it is a guilt offering. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. And then in Numbers, uh, which for the most part doesn't deal at length as Leviticus does with the sacrificial system, makes this point very clear. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. When atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he is a native-born Israelite or an alien. But if anyone who, anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. The whole sacrificial system is for unintentional or sins that you committed that you didn't actually know you had done wrong. You're still considered guilty, by the way. We, we saw that. Okay? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You have broken the law. You are guilty. And a price must be paid. And the price is fairly costly. Something valuable has to be offered in repayment and restitution. The life of an animal is to be taken away as payment for one sin. So, in Hebrews we hear, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But this is for the person who sins unintentionally. What about the person who knows what he or she is doing? That they intentionally break God's law. The NIV has defiantly, someone who has defiantly broken God's law. The King James and the ESV have with a high hand. One just is almost proud in their defiance in breaking God's law. There's no provision made for these people. They are to be cut off. They are no longer a part of God's people. And yet, Jesus says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But did they in fact know what they were doing? 
if we try to apply this to our own lives, if we follow Jesus' example, are we to forgive those who don't know what they're doing? Or are we to forgive those who know exactly what they are doing? How far should Christian forgiveness go? This is, in fact, the most difficult question. Some people have argued that Christian forgiveness in some situations may be seen as almost immoral. How can you forgive someone who has intentionally done harm to another person? What does it mean to be guilty? What does it mean to be innocent? If we are not careful, we will think of the forgiveness Jesus asked for as superficial. And as a result, we will say or think the same thing about divine justice. What is missing in our thinking, I think, in this regard is the righteousness of God. The word that we hear from Paul is justification. It's the same as righteousness in Greek and in Hebrew, by the way. Paul writes in Romans 5.9 that we have been justified by his blood. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. This is the blood that he shed on the cross. I would suggest to you that this is even more radical than forgiveness itself. In Romans 5, Paul sums up the Christian message. And by the way, this was what we heard today in the promise of forgiveness. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the previous chapter, in Romans 4, Paul says exactly the same thing about Abraham. Abraham did not trust in his own good works, but rather he trusted in God who justifies, who makes righteous the ungodly. One could make the case that if you look at any world religion, ultimately it seems that their goal is to make people better, to make them righteous, spiritual, godly even. Otherwise, what would be the point of people performing certain rituals, going to church, to temple? What would be the point? But it is here that the Christian faith is quite different and diverges from other religions. Here, the gospel that Paul sums up is the most radical thing we can hear. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly? Who are the ungodly? Who are these people? We are. We are the ungodly people. Along with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, along with Paul and the apostles. Apparently Paul didn't know that the American gospel would be God helps those who help themselves. But he demolishes this so succinctly While we were still helpless, while we were ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. If we were to be honest, there are parts, there are elements of ourselves that cannot be defended. They're indefensible. And if you don't know that, then you know nothing of the grace of God. If we don't understand our own defenselessness in the grip of sin and death, then we don't know who Jesus is, who comes as the one to justify the ungodly. 
Forgiveness needs to be understood in this way. In some ways, our thoughts of forgiveness are too small. I've noticed as I've gotten older that if, in fact, you were to apologize to someone, um, it used to be people would say, um, well, I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, I forgive you, because that's sort of heavy, but that's okay, that's all right. Uh, What I hear more and more today is, no worries. No worries. Our thoughts, I think, of forgiveness are too small. What God does is more than forgiveness. He makes the ungodly righteous. It is God making what is wrong with us right. And this is much more than forgiveness. We are called to forgive those who have sinned against us. We must do this. But we do not have the capacity to make someone righteous. We don't always have the ability to make something right. We cannot justify someone. Only God can do this. And this is the gospel. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we consider the words of Jesus on the cross, this is where it begins. And this is where we should begin. To answer the question about whom Jesus is speaking when he asked his Father to forgive them, that's us. We are the ungodly. We are the cause of his being put to death on the cross. came across a couple of hymns that deal with this. One is a 17th century hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus. And we hear this in the second verse. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. And by the way, I looked this up on YouTube to hear, because I didn't know what the, how, what the melody was like, and I found that there was a particular meeting where at the end they decided to sing this, but they didn't sing the second verse. Because it is the second verse that kills us. I crucified thee. And in the words of another hymn, Cross of Jesus, Cross of Sorrow, Here the King of all ages, throned in light ere the worlds could be, robed in mortal flesh is dying, crucified by sin for me. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I'm reminded when I was a graduate student at UCLA in one of the classes I took, uh, Christian Origins, one of the students raised his hand and questioned the professor. He was rather indignant. He said, what if I don't want to be forgiven? Aren't you sort of impinging on my will? Isn't it somewhat arrogant for Jesus to say, forgive them? Until we come to acknowledge that we are in need of forgiveness, I think we will not hear correctly the words of Jesus on the cross. The second word is, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And as we consider the second word, we need to remember what's going on. Jesus is nailed to an instrument of torture. He is completely helpless. He is at the mercy of sadistic torturers, and those who pass by are mocking him. 
Yet, if we will look closely, he is reigning from the cross as king. This king is crucified between two criminals. Traditionally, these two men have been referred to as thieves and thought of as common criminals. And that's not quite right. Even the word criminal itself, I think, is is a bit weak. These were bandits. These were brigands. They were lawless. They were professional, full-time criminals. They were a serious threat to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Crucifixion is the supreme penalty for this type of criminal. The offense of sedition. For the most part, the Romans did not waste their time with petty criminals. You know, just killed them. They didn't necessarily crucify them as examples. But crucifixion was a means of displaying people to the public to say, you screw with us, this is what happens. You mess with the Roman Empire, this is what happens to you. The intent is not simply to kill. It's not the most efficient way to kill someone. It really is not. It takes days for such a person to die. The intent is to dehumanize. To remind people of the consequences of defying Caesar. This is what will happen to you if you dare raise your hand against the empire. Here we find, as one author put it, three men pinned up on crosses like insects, exposed to the mockery of the passerby as it was a ritual of humiliation. In addition to the physical pain and the shame of being naked before the world, by the way, whenever you look at a crucifix, there's always a piece of cloth that's sort of strategically placed. But the intent was, in fact, to humiliate, to expose one to all those who would go by. The victim is, in fact, deliberately dehumanized to the point of being unrecognizable. Isaiah 53, in fact, expresses that. We look at him and we don't even know that he's a human being. The person on the cross becomes an object. He is no longer a person, a human being. And this is a chance for you to get out all your anger. You can vent, you can curse, you can say everything you want against this person. And the Roman Empire approves. This is sort of a way to let off steam. You know, are you feeling a bit pent up? Go to your local crucifixion. Let it all out. Yell at these people, curse at these people. This is what Jesus endured on the cross. And we need to understand this. In the midst of their agony, we hear what we might expect from one of the men. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Yeah, if Jesus in fact could save them, why not save us now? But then we hear what is most unexpected. And I think we fail to appreciate this because it's so familiar to us. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What made this man think that Jesus had a kingdom? What made him think that Jesus was a king? Here we find a man, we hear a man committing himself to the care of a man who has no power to move his hands. He's nailed to a cross. He is a helpless or seemingly helpless victim of the Roman Empire. He is degraded, he is naked. He is bloodied, soon to be a corpse. Yet somehow, seeing beyond all this, the man confesses Jesus as king. 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. These are words we might say in a time of crisis. The central thought being that Jesus has the power to save. The paradox is, when Jesus is his most powerless, he in fact has the power. He is the king. He's hanging on a cross. He's slowly dying. He will be dead within a few hours. The only power he has left is the power of his word. And he says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. We need to be careful when we hear the second word that we don't lose focus. Some might wonder, and many have, does this mean or is this proof that we go directly to heaven as soon as we die? Does this mean that Jesus went directly to heaven after he died, even before the resurrection? That he went to heaven and then he came back on the day of the resurrection. What does Jesus mean by paradise? What is paradise like? These are not important questions for Luke. I think they should not be for us. If this is where our focus is, then we will lose sight of what is truly important. We need to focus on what Jesus said. And there are two key words in this second word that Jesus speaks. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. For most people, the two words are in paradise, and they want to know what that's like. But the reality is the two key words are with me. You will be with me. This is the key. Paradise is wherever Jesus is. Being in paradise means being with Jesus. In Psalm 16, we read, you, may, you, will, you will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. To be in the presence of Jesus forever, that is paradise. And Jesus says in the second word, today you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. The last word is found in verses 44 through 46. If you look here in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke 23. This is the immediate context. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's from noon till three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. There are some who don't know. I don't know if you do, but Jesus is in fact quoting from Psalm 31. Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Jesus is nearing the end of his life. The execution is almost complete. The torture is beyond what we can comprehend or imagine as is the degradation and the humiliation. Earlier, in one of the earlier words, Jesus had said from Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has suffered so much. Yet here at the end of his life, he commits his spirit, he commits his life to the Father. This last word of Jesus is familiar to most. But again, many do not realize it comes from a psalm of David. But when David wrote these words, they were not the words of a dying man. 
They are not the words of someone who faces the ultimate terror of death, who then entrusts himself into God's hands, that which lies beyond death. No, these, in fact, are the words of a man committing his life, his spirit, into God's safekeeping. And I would argue in some ways this is the bigger issue. It may be that as we read this last word, we see it as a very dramatic way to go out. What best way to end your life comes to an end than to say these words. And perhaps even imagine that perhaps on our deathbed, if we can see our death coming, that we will say with Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the reality is, this is what we are to say every day of our life. That our lives are in God's hands. Moment by moment, in an existential way, we are to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. David is aware that there are those who do not trust in God. They trust in worthless idols, that which is powerless to help. David, for his part, trusts in God, who is not only righteous, but he is a God of redemption and truth. So as we hear these last words from Jesus on the cross, may we understand that we too are to commit our lives to God, the God of redemption and love, the God of truth. Here are the seven words that we hear on the cross, the last words Jesus spoke before his death. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. But first we have to go through this week. We can't skip over. Sunday we can't skip Monday through Saturday. This is a week that remembers the suffering of Jesus, the torture, the humiliation, and his death. But also the words that we read in Luke's account. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's only by the grace of God that we are forgiven. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And to be with Christ is in fact paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. May that be our prayer every day of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that in some ways the events of this week are so familiar to us, perhaps too familiar. After all, it comes around every year. Remember Palm Sunday. And then we remember Good Friday. Remember the death of Jesus, but in some ways lose sight, I think, of what is truly important. That your forgiveness brings with it righteousness. And when we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. And you are the God who forgives. 
And then we begin to quibble theological matters. What, what is paradise like? Did Jesus go to heaven after he died? We get so distracted from what is truly important, and that is Jesus promised to the men, you will be with me. And for us, this should be our highest goal, our deepest desire, is to be with Christ. And as Jesus did at the end of his life, may we, every moment of our lives, as David wrote it, commit ourselves to you. I think we hear this last word as something we say when we're really in trouble. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus, even as he is dying, is quoting scripture. He remembers what David had written. We feel pretty smug, self-sufficient. We forget that our lives are in your hands. May your spirit drive these truths home to us as we think about them in the coming days, as we meditate on them. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We would not be here but for him and his death. May we not forget that. Thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.